0: On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the upcoming Conservative rebellion on the tier system. And you ask us, should Keir Starmer be nicer to the party's left? The government is facing a rebellion from some of its MPs this week on the tier system that's kicking in after the lockdown in England is up on Wednesday, the 2nd of December. Boris Johnson has been doing what he can to try and reassure MPs and quell the rebellion and publish the sort of impact of what the new tier system will have on the rest of public health and the economy and society. Will that be enough to quell the rebels? And do you think that there's a real danger for
2: the government here at all? Ultimately, I don't think it will be enough to quell the rebellion. There are basically, in every parliamentary vote, there are two groups of would-be rebels. right? There are a group of people who are basically looking for a pretext not to do it. right? And they'll broadly take anything. CF, like the Internal Market Bill, where obviously not all because some did continue to revolt, but a critical mass of Conservative MPs were bought off by the concession that the law-breaking clauses would stay, but they would have to have another vote on it to actually exercise them. Yeah, in terms of like a meaningful long-term backstop against breaking the rule of law, it's, it's not great. And I think in some cases, it's because some of those MPs were like, well, look, we, we think we can win this vote in the future. But some of them just didn't want to rebel. And I think for some people, right, they will look at these impacts and they'll go, "Oh, yeah, that's fine." Or some of them will look at the healthcare stuff and go, "Because one of the like weird things about this situation, I mean, obviously it comes back to like it's not a surprising fact about the government, but like, ultimately there is no reason why any of the information about healthcare capacity was private ever. Like it's not like we get like the security services to find it out for us." It's not like to find out like what ICU capacity is, you have to be like, oh, by the way, if you're thinking of doing any cyber terrorism against us, here's like what the access code for the intranet for every NHS, hospital there is literally no reason why this debate has happened around the cabinet table and in committee, rather than it being a sort of wider national conversation. But I think broadly, if you're, you're going to rebel, you're going to rebel. What does matter about it? Is then I know I've um, said this a lot on the podcast, and indeed, if you listen to my week in Westminster this week, I've said it on that too. The first time an MP rebels is a much more significant event in their political life than the second or the third time they rebel. And I think the central reason why this matters, right, is broadly like Labour's going to vote for it. But, you know, when like next year, you know, when Rishi Sinek's like doing his, I'm afraid that the debt means that I must do these painful, painful decisions it just makes it much less likely it'll pass. And I still think that's like the biggest consequence mm. of all of the COVID rebellions.
0: Alva, what do you think? Do you think that even if the rebels don't change change the tier system or, or the future of restrictions in England, then it could change something for the party or the dynamic between the government and the party?
1: Sort of just to expand on, on Stephen's point, I think that it is very likely to pass precisely because Labour will almost definitely vote for it. I mean, they've been saying... Over the weekend that their support is not unconditional, and that they want to make sure that a the restrictions go far enough to keep virus levels low, and that they also want to see that there's sufficient economic support but as Lisa Nandi I think actually made made quite clear on Andrew Marr while emphasizing that it wasn't unconditional, labor has never never voted against coronavirus regulations. And because of the nature of the Coronavirus Act, the way they're voting, it's, it's secondary legislation. So it's a sort of like update to the Coronavirus Act. And you can either vote it up or down, like yes or no. And if you don't bring it in, then there's no legislation, you can't amend it or anything. So I think that they would be very unlikely to oppose it for that reason. They just want to show that they are taking a considered approach and highlighting ways in which it could potentially be approved. So I think for that reason, it's slightly academic, the question of a conservative rebellion, because I think even a lot of those rebels don't think that they could actually defeat the government on this. I think it's just more significant in terms of the way coronavirus and various governments approaches are becoming more politicized. Hmm. Certainly, That's obviously been a very, very strong theme in the US with like mask wearing, for example, and taking coronavirus seriously, being a sort of Democrat principle and increasing scepticism, being a sort of Republican value. And I think that we're seeing that a little bit playing out in terms of the response here and the political debate. But I think one thing I feel like is lacking is just the consensus that actually most politicians in the House of Commons are on the same page in terms of what the ideal scenario would be. I think they're just not in agreement about what the second best case scenario would be. What I mean by that is that, Clearly, the best case scenario for everyone, unless you're a moron, is that you want to see cases low with a you know a sufficiently good test, trace and isolate system. So you can open up the economy and there's enough consumer confidence that while you're waiting for a vaccine, normal life can resume to a greater or lesser extent that you're identifying cases quickly. You're identifying their contacts quickly and you're helping those people isolate, and then there's very low prevalence in the community. Clearly, like that's what we've talked a lot about the divide between Rishi Sunak's approach and Matt Hancock's approach. And we've always kind of said on on this podcast that, you know, Matt Hancock won in a way because Rishi Sunak wanted us to sort of live with the virus. And Matt Hancock's view was was that this was a short-term thing and that restrictions a sort of higher level of restrictions would be necessary until we get to the point of a vaccine but I've actually been thinking a bit more about that and I suppose I don't think any of that is wrong but I also think that the reason why Rishi Sunak thought he was right or the reason why those two responses looked so different was because test trace and isolate wasn't really working you could argue that that part of the responsibility for that falls with Rishi Sunak himself because of the level of support for isolation and and you know the very small levels of statutory sick pay and the payment that's now being made to people f- for self-isolation is quite small and also quite hard to be eligible for but you could also make the case that you know Rishi Sunak feels that he was let down because Matt Hancock didn't deliver his side of the bargain in the summer that Rishi Sunak was doing the The stuff to save the economy, and Matt Hancock and Dido Harding didn't deliver the test, trace, and isolate system. So I feel like actually there's complete agreement on what the good response to this actually looks like, and I feel like that's slightly lacking in the debate around it because it's so pro or anti lockdown. But no one's really pro lockdown. It's but like that's the second case scenario and and the fallback, you know, blunt tool to get control of cases if you don't have a good test, trace and isolate system. And that's where the difference of opinion is that some people think that that blunt instrument is completely necessary and other people don't. And I think the people who think it isn't are probably wrong because it's not even about the levels of the numbers of cases or even the death rate. It's literally about hospital capacity. Like you can't get to a stage where there are so many coronavirus cases that you can't provide healthcare for people having heart attacks or you know, with cancer or anything, because, you know, a literal state failure at that point. And so, uh, so then, it, then it kind of becomes, the, the entire debate becomes redundant. But I, I just think that this conservative, and it is mainly conservatives, preoccupation with like the harms of lockdown, I think they're just representing all the political difficulties and objections to what is not an ideal response and no one thinks is an ideal response and it's probably worth all of those objections and an awareness of the harm to business all being raised because the end result probably in terms of our actual politics the end result is just going to be like more more support for businesses and pubs more support for people who are struggling in various ways due to the economic side of things and that's kind of no bad thing Yeah, I I completely agree with that because one of the most
0: interesting things about this potential rebellion, and I'd urge all our listeners to listen to Stephen's Week in Westminster because it was really interesting, particularly when you interviewed Mark Harper, who's one of the chairs of this group, the COVID recovery group. And what you both kind of agreed on when you were doing your interview, sorry if I'm misrepresenting it in any way, but the, the, the group is actually a very broad range of Tory MPs. You know, there are people who will say, oh, the CRG... Is just the same as the ERG. It's just they're angry about lockdown instead of instead of Brexit. But actually, that's not that's not right, is it? There's there's such a mix of different MPs, and I think the reason why there's not necessarily clarity, like you were saying, Alvar, on what the alternative to lockdown would be the scrutiny that they're bringing to lockdown and the different issues that they have with it represents the, the the many different problems and sort of societal damage that lockdowns cause. But they also represent different issues with the government within the Conservative Party. And I think that's the interesting thing about this rebellion that will live on beyond, beyond any lockdowns, beyond probably the time that England's even in, in restrictions at all. Because you have those that are worried about individual liberties and maybe have a more ideological stance on it and want to look at policy from a libertarian perspective and don't like the just the way that, you know, every second of every day of people's lives are being dictated by policy. They, that just doesn't sit comfortably with their worldview. You know, that's a, that's a political and ideological viewpoint. But then there are others that are seeing what's happening in their own constituencies. They're seeing a lack of transparency on on sort of the impact of tiers and when these restrictions are chosen and why and for where, and are worried about that lack of transparency and are trying to represent their constituents in, in, in the best way that they can. And that's for all sorts of different reasons as well, too. So you have those people who represent constituencies in that are sort of affluent areas within counties that are under stricter restrictions now who are suddenly worried about the way that their businesses, which may have been, you know, ticking along, okay, or surviving until this point may do perhaps forgetting <laughs> that other parts of the country that may not be as well off of being in restrictions, probably, you know, in some places since July. And then you have those that are in the sort of areas where the conservatives have more recently made gains and are worried about the, their voters thinking, okay, I voted for this, I took a chance on it, but actually I don't really like the way that this government is treating me. And I think those three different, you know, one's very old school, one's traditional association, grassroots Tory kind of issues, and one is the newer kind of supporters of the Conservative Party who they're trying to cling on to. You have a mix of those who have their own different issues with the the way that the government has responded to this thing. And I think that cocktail, even if it doesn't create issues this week, in terms of legislation, I think that will have issues down the line for the government. Not to go on about it, but I I wrote a piece about the sort of new cohort of benefits claimants, and there is this, I think, emerging kind of squeezed middle. I know that's a clichéd political phrase, but I think there's a lot of people in potentially areas where... Tories are relying on keeping in future elections that are kind of thinking well I'm self-employed I'm an entrepreneur why aren't why am I missing out on support there's people who aren't claiming benefits or aren't on low enough incomes to get the self-isolation allowance which Alvi you rightly said is very low anyway who might think well why can't I get that I, I you know if I can't go out to work why aren't I being supported to stay at home and I think there's all sorts of different factions in the Conservatives current coalition of voters who have sort of been pissed off in different ways. And that's being manifested in this bunch of MPs, kind of a motley bunch of MPs who are opposing or at least questioning the tier system.
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right about the the fact that the most significant thing about the COVID recovery group is then yeah, I feel so much of like the stock in trade of explaining political rows is a lot of the time we are essentially going, look, this row is nominally about X, but it's really about Y. In another way, I think parties tend to be more healthy when that's the case. The reason why I think this exactly as you say, right, this is a, a broad based group of objections. I mean, so you have people in that group who who for their view is and, and they've kind of already got their victory, which is they're like, well we need to have an economic an idea what the economic impacts are because at the moment we're basically being our Rishi stands up and where he goes like oh don't worry I've got these generous support things and it's like okay but businesses are still shutting so we clearly need someone else to come in and mark what it is businesses actually need to stay open in the pandemic and then you can actually meet that you have other groups of people who are like we can't have another lockdown because you know look at what's happened to our national debt and it does, I think, you know, comes back broadly to obviously, and yeah, it's a very good piece about middle class coming to contact with universal credit for the first time. But it comes back to the fact that this is an, it's not so much a thing; it's an unwieldy electoral coalition, but broadly, I think to take the country or indeed any sort of organisation with you, you need to have clarity and you need to be able to communicate about trade-offs, which is kind of like the foundational thing that this government refuses to do at any point is go trade-offs exist. I think you see this with like the regional tier system, right, where... I was listening to so many sort of vox pops this week because I was, as well as doing the Westminster, I was doing um, Sky Paper review. So I spent a lot of time, you know, in rooms listening to the news playing before I go on to record. And there's lots of lots of people in, being interviewed saying, "I don't understand why here in Seven Oaks there are no cases, but in Medway they're really high. So why can't we be out of lockdown?" It's just like, well, because you're as well as being a region, you are also an economic cluster and. Economic activity happens between these two areas. So you can't meaningfully stop the rise in infections in only one place if people can, are still working and consuming in the other. Now, that's a very simple answer, but it doesn't mean that the people asking it are stupid because when has a national politician ever? Mm-hmm. ever laid out that argument like it's literally never happened right no one has ever kind of just sat down without you know kind of doing like a sort of 401 oh here's an analogy about how clever i am and no one has ever sat down and gone here is explained in plain english why it is then this this happens you know here's like the basic information about how this spreads to equip you to do things in a risk-free way and I think all of that stuff Mm. all of that stuff particularly if you are gearing up to try and persuade people to accept yes tax rises but also just straightforwardly and you know unquestionably more cuts so I know that I'm a bit of a stuck record on this one but I just don't think that a government which can't sit people down and go here is the reason why you are still in lockdown because of another bit of your region is one which can actually win enduring political consent for a second round of well, whatever round it would be of austerity.
0: Yeah, I do think I, I completely agree with with especially with what what you said about the fact that people are asking, well, why why am I affected by this this particular tier just because my neighbours have higher cases than we do? Some people may think, oh, why aren't they more neighbourly and why don't they suck it up or understand, you know, the different ways that a virus spreads, but actually no one's you're right, I don't think I've heard a single justification for it. All we had was that strange document of how <laughs> of how the government chose the different areas that went under which tier last week that was littered with question marks. Did you did you read that? It was so
1: funny. It was yeah. just so
0: strange and it doesn't really inspire confidence and it's not it's not well communicated at all.
1: And I think that in the government's defense, I think probably a part of that is actually just because it's complicated. Like there's the case that Stephen just laid out about the sort of economic and, and public health interconnectivity of different places and that you can't have restrictions in one without the other, but also just like the way it isn't just about raw case numbers, but about the trajectory of the virus and the R number and how all of those things intersect and I do feel like people not naming any prominent local newspapers in London but like I do think (laughs) that there's a kind of like innumeracy if that's the numerical equivalent of illiteracy around discussion of of case rates and the virus and so on because for example I mean it doesn't matter if your r number is below one if you're starting from a, a high base rate of cases Because that means that the virus is still spreading and it is also, you're still going to be adding to a high number, even if it is eventually coming down. And also as restrictions are lifted, it's likely to go above one again, that if it's at 0.8 at this point, it doesn't mean that it'll be at 0.8 after lockdown. I think that there's just been a lot of stuff around that that's quite confusing. But I also think something that Stephen and I were talking about last week was the way that this fits in with Christmas restrictions for the whole of the UK, which I think will, because, we, you know, we've got a long way to go before Christmas, we'll definitely end up talking about for a whole podcast episode at some point. But just the way these tiers for England intersect with a planned opening up for a period of days over Christmas, I think that that hasn't been communicated or understood in a way that I would worry is quite corrosive to public trust, because like clearly, if you're in a, in an area that was in tier one, and you've been in lockdown in England for a month, and you're coming out and you're in tier two or tier three, I think any sensible person who doesn't closely follow this would be thinking, well, hang on, does that not mean that the lockdown didn't work? I don't really understand and, and I think that they would be right too, because the answer is that you wouldn't have to be necessarily in a higher tier were it not for the fact that the government has to factor in the impact of loosening up quite a bit at the end of the month and I just think like little things like that I mean I've always felt even when the government makes some bad moves or communication errors I've always broadly felt that they end up at the right public health response even if they get there too slowly but lots of people are not on the same page with that and i and i think that it's dangerous to let those little things happen that like slowly erode people's confidence in the government's approach and i think we saw that with you know for example the graphs used to announce the second lockdown with that you know fateful 4000 deaths projection which turned out to be completely wrong And which is the basis of a lot of those conservative rebels skepticism about this lockdown. I just think that things like that, there are mistakes you can't really afford to make. And again, like Stephen was saying about the thing about like different tiers in different places and how badly that's being communicated. Like, I don't think I've heard anyone communicate that these tiers have to factor in loosening up for Christmas. And if you're not making that case, I think people will be confused.
2: Yeah, and I think that the really dangerous consequence of, of of the fact that no one in the government has explicitly gone, but guys, we are going to do this thing at the end of the month, and it's going to increase our viral risk in quite a big way, is we now have a situation where Boris Johnson has basically said, in order to buy off some of these rebels, that some places may come out of Tier Two into Tier One or out of Tier Three into Tier Two for the last fortnight before December, and I struggle to see the policy case. That even if what we really need before this huge logistical undertaking is people, you know, basically leaving urban centres and going back home to rural areas for for the most part, I, I struggle to see how it could possibly be a good idea in the two weeks prior to that. Particularly seeing as we know, right, and we've seen this in we've seen this in, in Wales having to go back into its lockdown, right? Then broadly, people have started to treat the unlocking as this kind of thing where it's just like oh they're going to lock us up again soon so like let's eat drink and be merry while we can right and I see no reason to believe you know seeing as that was very much the case in the last days before the lockdown in England came in seeing as that's what's happened in Wales after it unlocked I see no reason to believe that if like a bunch of places go into tier two in like two weeks before Christmas people aren't just going to be like oh yeah, great time for me to go out to a restaurant or whatever. And then, of course, they will get home in their crowded trains, crowded and disease-ridden service stations, yada, yada, yada. This is obviously an insane position to have got into from a public health perspective.
0: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 Weeks for £12 go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? Now's time for a section we like to call You ask us. us. So today's question, the person has not left their name, but they ask, if Keir Starmer was actually interested in uniting the Labour Party, wouldn't it be really easy for him to throw the left a bone and take a sting out of recent unpleasantness? Promote a left wing MP, talk up, announce a left wing policy idea. Wouldn't doing something like that be pretty effective and pain free? Why doesn't he do it?
2: Yes, yeah, so I I'm afraid I'm gonna do some kind of kvetching here, which is the I'm sorry. Real talk: the Labour Party is at present still, and and Keir Starmer himself has explicitly said this on several occasions, is still committed to raising the top rate of tax and introducing a new band. It's still explicitly said to the CBI, by the way. Some bits of you are getting nationalised, right? And you know, to take the the thing that you know I've complained about before, and it's you know to me personally the most like offensive policy concession, which is the abstentions on various security issues. I'm sorry. It's hard to reconcile that with actually existing Corbynism in practice, and see it as a particularly big breach from a policy perspective. Like, Buntley, like this is a Labour Party that is to the left of Ed Miliband's Labour Party, to the left of Tony Blair's Labour Party in terms of you know actual policy positions. Now, I of course have like a variety of of issues where I think that like. And under Blair, particularly in its first phase, that Labour government and party was more radical and brave than the Starmer-era Labour Party has, has been. But I just think, like, realistically, right, like, the problem here is then from a policy perspective, right, the... Labour leadership is doing this thing than people I'm not saying I don't think this question is sincere but I actually think then like the Labour leadership is kind of doing this thing than people think they want them to do what they're also doing sorry to like put it this front frankly is say you can't be in the shadow cabinet share an interview which contains a racist trope and not apologise and stay in it right You can have a number of criticisms of the utterly inept decision to be like, I know, why don't we, A, put the last Labour leader through this process that is flawed, B, expedite their process through this process that's flawed. When, you know, there are hundreds of cases that are are in this backlog and there is no reason why that case could not have remained there until the independent process came into being. But at the moment, it is not clear... That the leadership has done this thing, that, yeah, like from a policy perspective, right now I think you can make a perfectly coherent argument that when push comes to shove, Keir Starmer's Labour Party will retreat on policy, but it hasn't yet. Ultimately, I just think people need to ask themselves what it is they are actually committed to in this internal battle and what their actual preferred end game is.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question for exactly that reason because I showed my boyfriend for the first ever time actually that you ask us questions and asked what he thought was the most interesting one and he thought this question was the most interesting and he thought that it was a good idea. I thought that was revealing in and of itself because like Stephen says, if you actually think about policies that could be introduced... I think Labour's already doing it. I can't actually think of anything off the top of my head. Maybe we're going to get loads of tweets with a really obvious thing. But in terms of you know like the the bulk of their economic arguments, they're lobbying for a green recovery and which is effectively a green new deal. In terms of policy arguments there is huge agreement, a huge consensus on the Labour benches at the moment and I don't know what new thing they could introduce that would have a meaningful impact on party unity. But clearly there is a sense of of needing to go beyond the current issues with Jeremy Corbyn and the anti-Semitism right to say, like, hi, look, we're super left-wing. Because my boyfriend was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. But, but then in, in practice, it's much harder to think of what that might actually look like when they're already doing it. And I think actually it's maybe about Keir Starmer himself because i'm i don't know if the two of you will agree with this but i'm i'm struck sometimes that the key message is sometimes a little bit different to the overall labor message in that, in terms of policies and messaging that would throw a bone to the left of the party you only really need to look at someone like Marsha de cordova who's the shadow Equalities minister to already see everything that could constitute a bone to the left in terms of everything that she says about race and feminism and disability, all of her policy proposals are clearly the kind of thing that the left would want to be hearing, as well as being popular across the party. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, you know, if she's doing that particular brief and and then across the board, the different ministers with their different briefs, Luke Pollard on the environment, Annalisa Dodds and Ed Miliband on a green recovery, If you have those people making those cases but Keir Starmer is the one who's associated with whipping the parliamentary party to potentially vote for a Brexit deal he and the shadow home secretary are the ones taking a tougher line on security and he's the one who has the blunders on calling black lives matter a moment for example maybe it's a question of wanting to hear that message from him mm. and it isn't actually about any new policy announcements or about any promotions because there are, are already people from the left on the shadow front bench and some of them have resigned since he became leader but but like that that has already been the case. but yeah I think that there's probably I think a, a grain of truth in that question, even though in terms of policies, I don't know what Labour could be doing differently. Anish what what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree in terms of policies. I think if you put
0: those policies on paper and removed the names of who the main advocates were, then it would look like a pretty left-wing opposition despite the fact and this is a big caveat they're not putting forward that many policies at the moment because it's all about scrutinising the government's response to the pandemic mainly. So yes, Keir Starmer came out and said that it was still his priority to tax the top 5% of earners. He, he, He made that clear in October. That was one of his commitments when he ran for the leadership. There had been some maybe some miscommunication I think with an interview that Lisa Nandy did where she said now wasn't the time to be talking about tax rises but he came out and said no I want to do this Annalisa Dodds has, has talked about taxing people with the broadest shoulders also Rachel Reeves Annalisa Dodds Ed Miliband have been going hard on this cronyism you know outsourcing stuff and there seems to be sort of a new story about this almost every week now And and we know for sure that the public find this kind of suggestions that you know friends of the government have been given these contracts and then mess them up which seems to be a bit of a theme which is building we know the public find that unpalatable and labor have gone really hard on it and it's been it's been a theme of pmqs and things so in as much as we don't really have that much that many policies forthcoming from the labor party their response and their scrutiny and the the themes and the attack lines that they've been going hard on i think have been from a from a left wing perspective and i think if if those kind of rebuttals and kind of campaigns Weren't coming from people who perhaps aren't identified by the Corbinite Left as people on the left of the party, then we would think, okay, Keir Starmer is is leading quite a left wing opposition at the moment. So I do agree that it's more probably more of an issue of personalities than actual policies, and that suggests to me that maybe there isn't someone who sort of plays a symbolic role as an, a figure from the Corbinite Left in a in a position of enough seniority to kind of reassure people or or bring that part of the party with them so you know maybe it's not such a bad idea for someone like that who has the talent and who has the appetite for cooperation to maybe get a more high profile role like that and and maybe that is quite a good idea I do think sometimes things aren't just about policies on paper we can even see it in our traffic you know when you write about a a left-wing policy you don't get as many people reading it as when you write about who's going up or who's going down. So even people on on the left who, you know, hold many of um, the policies that Jeremy Corbyn had in his manifesto very dear, you know, I think they would still feel more reassured if it was a matter of personality and maybe bringing some more people who are seen as sort of kosher Corbyn era left wingers into the tent.
2: The thing is, right, is it's very easy to say in a contemptuous tone of voice, our politics is actually more of a vibe. But Mm. I think it's actually for most voters, politics is more of a vibe. right? And, you know, to alienate the other half of our listeners, right, you saw this a lot in the 2017 to 19 period. Well, we would get listeners swearing blind, emailing into Morning Call, threatening to cancel their subs. In some cases, actively cancelling their subs every time we were like Jeremy Corbyn explicitly said that Labour accepted the result of the referendum in 2017, and you have not been lied to and you've not been misled. There was, yeah, like there was there was no point <laughs> which like the Labour Party had given anyone reasonable grounds to believe that a hey, Labour vote in 2017 meant that Brexit wouldn't happen. But he obviously, like, had, and this is why he was an electoral asset, I believe, in 2017, was he had a kind of Remainer vibe. Mm -hmm. And this thing is that the kind of the vibe of Labour, now non-threatening, means that, like, the fact that, you know, Labour has a more articulated, not least because it exists, and radical position on welfare than it ever had other than like right in the eve of the 2019 election, when John McDonald basically had to be like, we've had three terrible shadow DWP secretaries from broadly across the party's traditions. They've all done nothing in this brief. I'm just going to be like, right, universal credit. We're, we'll put more money into it. We'll fix it, and we'll look at the replacement later. Right, but like Labour has a more radical welfare policy now. But I think like the reason why I think I understand why people who I understand why a lot of our listeners like oh no there's been a big move but ultimately the tonal shift right in the moment and I challenge anyone who says thinks this is not true to go back and look at their own tweets or their own emails or their own whatever whatever like non-falsifiable output they have right the moment when a bunch of people decided that Keir Starmer was moving to the right was not the witless and short-sighted abstentions on the security staff is when he sacked Becky Long-Bailey real talk yeah, yeah the tonal shift that has caused people to be like oh he's really right wing is the Labour leadership saying that they can't do Jew hate I really hate to be that blunt about it but like people need to be honest with themselves about what their actual tonal cue is because it, it is not policy-based and bluntly like I don't see what it is the, the Labour leadership can give people given that like yeah, without inventing a time machine, not creating the impression, as Keir Starmer has done unhelpfully, in my view, since running for the leadership, then the EHRC recommendations are, well, A, I, I just used the word recommendations, right? Then they're a thing that like is optional or the party needs to unify around. Mate, the regulators come in and said that you've failed on an issue of anti-racism and they are, you are forced to change the rules. Mm-hmm. You don't unify when the regulator comes in because the point to unify around doing something was before the regulator came and told you off. And I think that's like the central problem isn't for a large chunk of people, although actually when we look at like the Labour list poll of their readers with servation, not a majority, 55% of Labour list readers think the parties are going in the right direction. But a large chunk of people have decided to equate left wingery with how much they dig in on this issue and a report, and ultimately, is binding. It doesn't matter what anyone say, say, says. Like, you know, like, if you don't like the proposals, tough. Shouldn't have had the reg- got to a point where the regulator was called in.
0: Yeah, I think I'm really glad you gave that example of when Becky Long Bailey was sacked because I do think that's absolutely right. I think that is far more of a signal to people, actually, on both sides. You know, people who who wanted to be her to be part of the shadow cabinet and people who didn't. That was much more of a signal to everyone what direction Keir Starmer was sort of perceived to be moving in than any sort of policies that he's advocated for or anything like that. So it's a really good example to use of how personality and, and personnel can affect yeah. people's opinion of, of which direction the leadership's going in.
2: I think it's, that also comes back to the thing broadly, the the moment if Keir Starmer feels he needs to do something like that is clearly, bluntly, after the independent process has come in. Mm. And again, I, I'm sorry to like be this blunt about it, but a group of people of the Labour Party have, have basically shown that kind of bat like hearing when, you know, a member of Change UK says something like crass and then suddenly like, oh, but I don't understand the problem with the mural. I don't understand the problem with this trope. Bluntly, the, the the moment to reassure people who need to be reassured is clearly going to be after, not during this process of having to accept the legally binding recommendations <laughs> of the EHRC because I'm afraid this does have so many parallels with like the Europe debate, where it's just like, but guys, your revealed preference here isn't you just don't like Jeremy Corbyn being leader of the Labour Party? Yeah, he's not going to like change that by being like, oh, I, I like a customs union now. And I just think, like, that's why I feel sorry for Martin Ford doing is like re- in reporting to the culture of the Labour Party, there's clearly something fundamental about Labour culture. Which means that people just can't admit to themselves what their actual problem is.
1: I don't disagree that it was around the time of Rebecca Long Bailey's sacking where the consensus that Keir Starmer was was a move to the right came from. I think it's sort of worth worth also thinking about how like that can that coincided with a lot of his bigger interventions on cultural issues that. That sort of, the one we mentioned earlier, the sort of Black Lives Matter being a moment blunder, that interview where it seemed like, unlike lots of people on the left of the party, he wanted to be more equivocal about those protests. Like that happened within a few days of the Rebecca Long Bailey sacking. And I think there were other things. And I mean, I know that we've, we've had this discussion before about how Jeremy Corbyn wanted to have more police officers in the UK. He, you know, he, he wasn't going to, about to defund the police. And so in terms of the policy, again, there isn't a substantial shift there. But I think that definitely the Rebecca Long-Bailey thing was the main thing. But then I think as was sort of confirmation bias in the days that followed, it was also the tonal shift on cultural issues that just reinforced that. And that's, like you say, it being more of a vibe those are all the things that make people think of Keir Starmer as so far removed from Jeremy Corbyn rather than you know, like the the party's economic policies and, and so in that spirit probably a new policy wouldn't make any difference to to those things
0: you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Anusha Kellyanne and my colleagues Stephen Bush and Alva Ray We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening.